Hey everybody, Donna Turner here from the Buy Tampa Bay Podcast. So we've decided to start a brand new series and we're kind of calling it Nuts and Bolts. So over here at Home Prop, you know, we're a professional property management company operating in Tampa Bay and we just wanted to talk about a lot of the processes and procedures that we do every single day and that every investor should know. Even if you're not going to do it yourself, even if you're going to use a third-party management, you should know what you ought to expect from your property manager. You know, using property managers, you're basically a manager managing managers, right? So you want to know what to expect. You want to know what a good job looks like. So we decided to start a conversation on that. Our very first one today, we were going to talk a little bit about the very famous, very important, I mean, it's the bedrock of our business, right? And it's rent collections. So how about we get started? Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't be called rental property if it wasn't all about the rents, right? Yeah. Kind of fundamental. Yeah. I mean, if you're not collecting anything, you really don't have an investment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, today we're going to share with you some of our best practices as far as rent collection goes. And uh, I guess we're going to start at the beginning, right? We're going to start, like, how do you even know what to rent your place for, right? How do you set that rent rate? Yeah, you know, realtors, of course, talk about this all the time, right? Comps. You've heard comps before. That's short for comparables. And, you know, there's any number of things that builds, like, CMAs, maybe you've heard about that. That's a comparable market assessment, right? It's a way that realtors go in and determine what a house is worth. Uh, And that CMA approach is something that a lot of property managers do too to help understand or to help determine what a home should rent for, right? They look back at what other homes that are similar to yours or mine might have rented for in the recent past. Let's say yours is a 3-2, okay? Three-bed, two-bath home with a two-car garage and it's 1,800 square feet, I would look within a radius of where my home is located to see what other three-bed, two-bath homes with two-car garages that are roughly 1,800 square feet have rented for. And if I can see some recent rental values that are similar to mine, that sets, at least to some degree, a benchmark or an, a comparable a measure of the rental value of my home. It's kind of a, a backward-looking measure to see what I should rent my home for, but it's one such measure at least. Now where you're faced with a little bit of challenge in that is if you have, if you're in a rapidly appreciating uh, rental market like what we are right now, and you look back over the last 30 or 60 days for what homes have rented for, well that's a backward looking measure of value and maybe you should be looking forward. So I mean, when it comes to your rentals, Chase, how have you looked forward and you know, not gotten pulled backward by these aging or historic CMAs? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, for, for years, people have said, well, you know, where do I even go to see what a comp is for rental, right? I mean, MLS has historically not been the best place to go because realtors don't want to waste their time putting rentals into MLS, you know? And even when they list them in MLS, they don't go back and tell you what they actually rented for. So we had Zillow come on the scene, right? Zillow started giving us rents estimates. You know, those have been you know, improving over time and now have become a pretty decent, you know, predictor of what a property should rent for. you got some other websites out there like uh, Rentometer that can give you some good local data on. you got to kind of know, well, am I in an increasing market or a decreasing market, right? Am I in a neighborhood that's got a glut of supply of rentals? Uh, who am I competing against? You know, how does my house stack up to some of these other ones that are on the market? There's still a lot of factors that go into that, similar like to what would go into a home appraisal of value. Um, but at the end of the day, personally, 
I do like the rinse estimate. You know, I go there typically first, and I look now, and I see, well, okay, does that make sense to me, right? I think right now in Tampa Bay, homes are running on average for around $1.80 a square foot, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know, and it depends. Uh, right now, we've got a very short supply. So can you push the market a little bit? Can you, can you go above that rinse estimate? Can you try and be predictive in that way? Sometimes you can, you know, and it's all about that feel of, you know, what's going on in your neighborhood and where do you feel like supply and demand are? I feel like almost we could talk the entire podcast about this. But, um, well, it makes me think, yeah, it's great that we have Zillow. You know, it's active, it's dynamic. You can see live prices and you can see how long they're on the market. I mean, it's an incredible tool, right? Um, but then I think about, like, the Cowboys in the Wild West. So basically, you know, like, the, the guys that were operating in the 70s and 80s, how did they do it, right? They didn't have the tools that we have today. What do yeah. you think? Like, yeah, that's right. You know, and it wasn't just 70s and 80s. I mean, go back, like, 15 years ago, and we didn't have these tools. And, you know, a lot of it was you would drive around neighborhoods and you would see for rent signs written by mom-and-pop landlords, you know, scrawled in big Sharpies, and they were like... Two one duplex asking six fifty a month, and that was your method of determining what your duplex, which is kind of next door, maybe one street over, should rent for, right? So we always use that comparable market approach, like looking at what things around us might be asking or might be renting for, or you talk to your local investor, maybe you know a landlord who owns a house next to you, and you ask him what he rented his house for, and you try to rent yours for somewhere around the same amount. We've kind of always approached it that way. That the technology has brought together this proliferation of information, and now we can look at all of these different data points to determine what we should ask for our home. And it's just a wonderful, robust market data set that we have now. And, uh, and you're right, rent estimates have become wonderful because what we see in rent estimates is not just realtors listing rentals, but we see all the institutional rent rates hitting that market. Zillow has become an aggregator of rental data, and so pretty much if you're listing a property on apartments.com or in MLS or you're a private landlord, it all goes in there, and then you have like more data than ever to give you an indication of what you should rent your home for. But uh, it's really a wonderful age that we live in. Yeah, and one, one aside to that is, is the impact that these institutions have had um, over the past, you know, almost 10 years now since they started buying homes and how they underwrite rents and how they push the market. Because like Peter was mentioning, mom and pop investors for years, we relied on snipe signs on the side of the road, 650 a month for a 2-1 duplex, right? Well, you know, an institution came in one day and bought that duplex and decided, no, that rent should be 850 because we've underwritten it that way. Yeah. We think the demographics can support that. We've paid a price for it that demands it be 850 And they put it for 850 and someone rented it. And what that did for the mom and pops was say, oh, well, hey, if they can get 850 I can get 850 And now that became 850 And so when we look today and people, you know, are up in arms about the, you know, the, the quick rise in rent rates that, have, that has occurred since COVID and why that's happened and what's gone on to kind of push rents up to where they are, many factors. But from a mom and pop investor standpoint, you can thank the institutions for bringing the market up to probably where it should be. Yeah. Um, it's allowed investors to pay more money for houses as the, as the prices have risen because they can rent them for higher prices. And uh, I think overall, you know, you got one group of people that's going to call that greed. You know, yeah. you got another, another group of people that, you know, 
call that capital markets and supply and demand. And, you know, that, that's really what's going on there. It's not landlords out there trying to be greedy and jack rent up on people. It's that the market demands it. So, yeah, that's such an important point because especially right now when, when institutional investors are interviewed, they'll comment on how they only control this tiny portion of the housing market. Five percent, right? Yeah, like, and that's true, right? They only own that portion of the housing market. But they've made such a big splash lately and they've brought such great data to the market that mom and pops have been able to follow their processes. Mm-hmm. And they have been hugely influential in driving rent prices higher. And so now all their data is in the books. We know what they're able to rent for. And interestingly, also they own apartments, right? So they know what apartments are renting for. And now mom and pop data, and they're pushing that data right into their single family rentals or their duplex rentals. And that, that influence is causing all those rent prices to come up. And it's having this wonderful... Uh, ship, this wonderful raising ship effect on landlords' portfolios. And not so wonderfully, but this is the outcome of this. It's causing renters to pay a whole lot more for that rent. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I was in a conversation with a guy recently, and he, you know, he, he said very plainly, he was like, you know, it's horrible what they're doing to those people out there. And I was just thinking of that. I was just like, well, you know, I'm not going to go into a debate with this guy, but, like, it's a very simple way to talk about it. But just like you, I think you said... It's a lot more complex than that. I mean, thinking about Zillow, right? Just how efficient it's become. I could look at all the rents, you know, in my market, and I'm obviously going to choose the cheapest one, comparatively. So that is going to make all the prices balance, right? And then we, we talk about migration, how many people and how much demand is moving into the place. I mean, frankly, Tampa Bay is a beautiful place. You're 30 minutes away from the beach. We got, we got restaurants, all this stuff. And so more and more people are coming to move here mm. and also affordability is relative right to a lot of people that are here in the market right now it's losing affordability but to a lot of people moving in it's incredibly affordable and it's remaining that way yeah right? well that's why setting the rent price appropriately is very important because this podcast is about collecting rent mm-hmm. and you want to be able to collect the rent and you want to make sure that the people that you choose to put in the property can't afford to pay the rent and, and so there is a fine line there between pushing the market to the highest possible number and renting to a good, solid, dependable tenant that's always going to pay the rent. And so should you take a 3 to 5% haircut on top of the market to get the right person? Maybe you should sometimes, and that's something you should consider because at the end of the day, when someone's going to move in, you're asking them on in most occasions, and what we found to be a best practice at this point is first month, last month, and security deposit. So that's basically whatever the monthly rent is times three. Mm-hmm. You know, so if it's a twenty-five hundred a month rental, it's going to be seventy-five hundred dollars. The tenants are going to need to come up with and move in. That's a lot of money for most people. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's expected now. I mean, it's industry standard practice, but um, you know, you got to think about what you're going to be asking, and can the people fulfill the ask. And, and not just a move-in, but every month, right? So maybe someone's flush with cash because they've got a stimmy check or they've sold their home or something else has happened. Tax they've, got, they've got a tax refund. Yeah. So they've got the money now to pay first last month's and security deposit. And, oh, by the way, they also have to pay a security deposit on their utility fees 
that's electric and water, and they've got to relocate. And that costs more than just, you know, pizza for your movers, right? That's like sometimes it's real money to move, right? So these people are coming out of pocket with a lot of money. So maybe they've got the cash to do that. But now on a reoccurring basis, do they have the source of income for them to be a solvent and stable renter for the long term? So ask as high as you want, but you must keep that in mind, right? And, and you're not going to want to just keep that rent consistent forever. You're going to want to raise it each year if you're a landlord. So if you're already top, top, tippy top of the market and you want to raise it 3 or 4% next year, um, but you're not in a market where incomes are growing at, at a sustainable rate to afford that kind of price increase, sure. then that's going to create some dilemmas for you long term. So lots to consider here. And I know it's tempting to say, let's get as much as we possibly can uh, for, for our rent price, but we have to look, we have to be somewhat, uh, you know, pro profits here to, to understand where things are going too, so we don't put ourselves in a place where tenants can sustain their rent long term. Yeah. That makes yep. a lot of sense. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, with that kind of as a background on market rent and how we set rent, now, you know, rubber meets the road, right? Now it's time to collect the money, right? So... We mentioned just a minute ago about collecting first, last, and security deposit up front. All right, so how have we done with that? that? That's been a little bit of a transition because three or four years ago, we were just collecting first month and security. Lately, we've gone to getting first, last, and security. I know this is kind of all over the board across the market as to what mom and pop landlords feel comfortable with. Right. Yeah, okay. there's, some, there's some properties, depending on the demographic you're appealing to, where you're going to really stretch them to get that much. And so maybe at the lower income segment, you're still in the, in the, in the place where you have to only collect first month's rent and a security deposit, somewhat equivalent to your first month's rent. So it's like 2x rent that you can collect. Um, and that is still fairly common at the low end segment, but it's becoming less common as the market in general moves to this 3x multiplier that Chase mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, but just, you can't have a hard and fast rule that you're unyielding at if you've got a diverse portfolio of assets. Keep that in mind as you go to market. Yeah, and so like, we normally underwrite, I know this isn't about underwriting, but I think this is a key metric to look at. We normally underwrite our tenants at two and a half times the monthly rent, right? We want their, their gross income to be at least two and a half times the monthly rent. And so when you're asking a 3x rent at move-in, you're asking for one month's salary, basically, actually more than what they take home, probably, um, at the move-in. And we've talked about that. However, um, this is the one component where you can mitigate your underwriting. Okay, so like if you've got a tenant that is, you know, got a few blemishes, maybe not the perfect tenant, but you feel good about renting to them, you know, Extra deposit, a little bit extra up front can mitigate whatever kind of blemish they have on their in their underwriting, and um, so that that's that's your security. That that's why we have gone to this practice of collecting first, last, and security, because it's the most secure situation for the owner. And in the market we're in right now, where rent rent demand is so high and there's so little supply out there, people are finding a way to pay it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and, and here's the reality of why you want first, last, and security. It is very common for last month rent to be skipped out on at certain demographics. And certainly at some of the lower end products, you're frequently going to have a tenant who is going to be like, I'm moving out in a month. They're going to do the calculus in their mind that they don't have to pay that last month's rent because by the time the owner actually evicts them, 
they will be out of the house already. And so they're going to attempt to short pay that last month's rent. So collecting last month's rent is helpful to mitigate that reality. Second of all, if someone does move out early uh, or move out at the end of their lease and there's damages on the property, that security deposit is almost is almost not adequate to cover any single repair item at the home. So carpet replacement, major damages to walls, uh, a landscape that hasn't been well maintained. That security deposit just simply isn't enough. So when you collect 3x or you have a tenant who you think might be a risk and you collect more than that even, that's enough to cover some of those expenses at move out that the security deposit just isn't going to be adequate to cover. Yeah. Yeah, you want to protect your asset, you want to protect your cash flow stream, and you want to, if you're a manager, you want to protect your client's investment, right? And so one other thing that we've done for years now, um, this is not always industry standard, but it's something that we were, we were keyed into, you know, 17 years ago when we started this, is that if a tenant moves in halfway through a month, we still collect a full month's rent up front even though it's a shortened period of time. Yeah. And then we allow them to prorate the second month. You know, that gives us more security with them moving in versus like if you had a tenant moving in on the 20th of the month and the prorated part would only be like a third of the monthly rent, if that's all you collected, now someone's got possession of your property and they've only paid you a pittance of what the monthly rent's going to be. Mm-hmm. So we collect a full month up front and then we would charge them for those 10 days in the second month. And we found that to be a pretty good practice. And, you know, it just provides a little bit more security to the initial, you know, move in and taking possession of the property. Yeah. And although it may not be exactly related to collections, which is kind of the point about this, collecting rents, there's some wisdom in staggering the date, if you've got a portfolio with multiple assets, in, like, changing your move-in dates. Like, don't make all your move-in dates on the first of the month, right? Maybe move some of those move-in dates to the middle of the month or the end of the month. That way, you are avoiding a scenario where you have a bunch of vacancies at the exact same time. And just some basic things like that um, are a good idea. And secondly, there's a question that you want to ask yourself. is Should you always uh, sign up a lease to end at the end of a month? Maybe not. Maybe you've got a scenario where you've got a, a, a large college contingent in your town. And if you sign up a lease to end at the end of the month, you might miss... The opening day of school, right? You might want kids to be able to move in. You want, might want that lease to expire in the middle of the month so that that unit can be ready for move-ins at the first of the month if there's a complex turnover. So a couple of things that are, that are your flexibility as a landlord. Think strategically for what it's going to look like 12 months from now. Yeah, and I really like that that last concept of having the lease end in the middle of the month. I like it for a couple of reasons and that most of our units don't require significant turnover. Maybe, maybe a few little cosmetic touch-ups, maybe a professional clean, something like that. Something you can get done in three, four days. And if you can stagger the end date of your lease to be somewhere between the 15th and the 20th on properties that are classically in good shape when the people move out, then you can pre-market for the first and have somebody ready to move in and you minimize your days of vacancy. Right. So whereas if you had ended it on the 30th of the month, and someone need to move in on the first, you give yourself no cushion to be able to get those two, three, four, five days of work done. And you're, you're going to be sitting on that property vacant possibly for four weeks before the first comes of the next month when someone's ready to move in. Sure. So we found that to be a pretty good strategy. 
yeah, we're getting we're getting really granular here, but hopefully this is helpful to listeners to understand you know some of the real some of the micro tweaks you can make to your approach to property management that will really maximize your total portfolio returns. It's going to make a huge difference if you can you know not have an extra month of vacancy because of how you turn over a property. So yeah, I mean fifteen hundred a month in rent that's fifty bucks a day. Yeah, you're losing for every day that place sits vacant. So right, right. yeah, vacancy is expensive. Yeah, yeah I get it definitely it. is. So let's move ahead a little bit then to like the process of make, collecting that first that first month's rent, that security deposit. Uh, we, of course, historically, we would take big wads of cash. <laughs> we would take personal checks. We would take money orders that looked like they were drawn on, uh, you know, they were dirty and stained. And it was, uh, it, we had, it was kind of a free-for-all when it came to collections. And that was not all that long ago. So now we're in an age where things are significantly more digital. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, cash is king, right? I mean, and the IRS never finds out about it. <laughs> At least they used to not. Now they're tracking our bank accounts. You can't but say that. I, I know. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, recognizing there's probably some old school people out there, you know, have been doing this a long time like we have. And, you know, getting a couple hundos under the table is never a bad thing. Nice, hey, man. Right? <laughs> 60,000 new agents. They might have one listening to the podcast. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Right. You know, somewhere on there. Just kidding. We don't do that. No. Uh, but... There's, there's so much security and risk nowadays, you know, and, and risk to the money in your own pocket sometimes that goes into the collection process. And so if you're a manager uh, and you've got agents out in the field managing properties, you don't want them collecting cash. You don't want, you don't want them collecting personal checks, you know. Personal checks bounce. They bounce a whole lot, actually. You know, you, you don't want, you want to minimize the amount of physical collection of monetary objects as you can because it's safer and it's more efficient and it's more secure so you know that's that's the goal when you think about this broad-based rent collection you know process that you have to undertake is how can i make it the safest most efficient most secure that i can yeah i mean we used to have an entire accounts receivable team whose primary job was to sit opening rent envelopes you know scanning and depositing checks into our system and then making runs to bank accounts to physically deposit the checks just to kind of do rents. And that had to happen at the beginning of the month. I mean, look at the cost that was. Look at the opportunity for error in data entry, for like misplacing something, let alone anything malfeasant like someone actually sticking one of those hundos in their pockets, you know? Like any number of those things could have and probably did happen. And when you can automate that collection process, Almost all of that goes away. And so we've gotten to the point where it is 100% automated for us. Yeah. And I'll describe how that is. You know, because not only do we have uh, our systems, property management systems, where tenants can enter their bank account information into their tenant portals and they can set up automatic payments for their rent. But we actively utilize mechanisms such as cash pay, where tenants can take cash money to their local 7-Eleven or Walmart or Western Union, and they can give that cash to those facilities. And then those facilities then apply that cash payment to their rent accounts. And, or where we accept in some cases even processes like your Zelle connected to your local bank account. And all of those things make the processing of rent payments absolutely seamless. Our accounting systems recognize that you've made your rent. They show that the rent funds are clearing within our systems bounce risk has almost completely gone away. Processing is almost totally gone. Not 
not that BounceSource is non-existent, because these automated processes, especially there was a time where we took credit cards, there was a time where we did other things like that, and of course there was a, a volume of problems associated with that, but some of our risk, much of our risk is gone because of the automation for the collection process. Yeah, you know, as you were talking about that, I remember those accounts receivable teams that we had, and I remember we got to the point where we were collecting and processing so many money orders from a local outfit called M. Scott that we went to, and we're t- I'm talking like hundreds and hundreds every month, that we went to M. Scott and we said, look, all of our tenants are coming to you, giving you cash, getting a money order, having to bring a money order to our office, and then we've got to have people that process that thing. Can we just have them pay rent directly to you? They can already pay their utility bills here. Can they pay their rent here too? And you just send us a report with an ACH and charge us $1.50 for it. And they said yes. It was the first time that had been done with Amscot in Tampa Bay. Like, you're welcome. We created that <laughs> process. You know? And uh, for those of you that are out there taking advantage of it today. But... Um, it was a tremendous efficiency that we put into the system, not only for us, but for the tenant. The tenant didn't have to get that money order to us anymore. You didn't have to fill it out. You didn't got to write your name and your address on it. You didn't have to do that anymore. We provided an inventory list to M. Scott, and they knew when the people came in what property they were paying rent for. We got one nice ACH with an Excel report. You know, five minutes, it's in the system. You know, it was great. And, uh, that's kind of what we do today with rent money because, you know, the, the foundation of any good rent collection process is your software. You know, that, that is key. You've got to have a software that is set up with these integrations so that you can utilize things like rent money. You can take, you know, card payments. You can take ACH payments. You, you can take all sorts of electronic funds without having to do double entry. And so that's how our system is set up. And we use PropertyWare. Um, we haven't really done any promotional stuff like that for third-party vendors, but we love Propertyware. We've been on Propertyware for 17 years now, wow. and um, we haven't changed because it continues to adapt and integrate with you know things like uh, third-party payment integration that makes our life a whole lot easier. Yeah, yeah, not not entirely risk-free, right? We've talked about some of the the fact that some risk still exists. So let's talk about what that risk is, so that landlords can be prepared for it, right? I, let, let's talk about credit card risk is a big one, first of all. You know, this may seem very attractive to take credit cards for rent payments, right? You, you, the tenant or you have got to absorb let's say, a credit card processing fee, but you get your money right away, and it seems like it's totally risk-free. Is it? Well, you know, it seems like it should be, right? I mean, they do sign the paper or make the agreement, you know, that they're going to pay this bill and everything else when they swipe the card or enter the info, but... Chargebacks are real. Mm-hmm. Um, we get chargebacks a lot for application fees. You know, when we don't accept a tenant, they want their money back. We've had chargebacks on the rent. You know, if someone's paying two or three thousand dollars, you know, on their credit card for rent, um, just beware that you know three, four, five days, even up to I think some are thirty days, they will allow a customer to go back and dispute a charge. And when they do, they immediately take the money from you. Right. And you have to then defend your charge on that card, um, which seems like that should be easy to do, right? You provide a lease, you provide you know, the agreement, the ledger, the fact that it was due. But I'll tell you from experience, it's harder than you think to get that money back. 
Yeah, nightmare scenario, right? We had a renter who was paying their rent for a six-month period of time using a credit card that he had authorized use of from his girlfriend, right? But then that relationship goes south. Sure. And that girlfriend pulls up her charge statement and disputes four months of rent charges. Says she didn't authorize it, she wasn't on the lease, there was, that owner was out of that money. There was no way for us to demonstrate that the owner or our company had the authority to take those charges from that renter and that that wasn't outright fraud. And because it was determined to be fraud, at least in the sight of the credit card company that that girlfriend had not authorized the use of that card to the boyfriend for rent, all that money went back to that tenant. So you've got to be careful for things like that. Taking credit cards is not ironclad. And nor is accepting auto payments from bank accounts, right? I mean, those look like they're processing. They look like they come right into you. But, you know, what happens to those from time to time? Yeah, same type thing. I mean, people can always dispute things that are being debited from their bank account. And it does happen. Um, now, what can you do to try and prevent some of this stuff? Well, there's really nothing you can do to prevent all of it because anybody at any time can do it. But I think in the example that Peter just gave about the credit card situation where you had a, an actual legal tenant on the lease using a payment device that was in someone else's name. Don't do that. Don't allow it. Now, can you always police that and know what's going on? No. But if you see it happening, stop it because it is more than likely going to become a problem. Um, if they're not a, a listed lessee on the lease... Um, or a guarantor that you have backup information for, I would not accept money from them. Right. You know, it's just, just part of the deal. And um, it's because there is this risk that you can lose money that you've already spent in some cases. You know, if you're a manager out there, beware, because this can happen over an extended period of time. And maybe you thought you collected the money and you've already sent that money to the owner. Now you've got a collection problem with your owner and the tenant because you got to get money back from both of them, right? right. So um, just, just be aware that that kind of stuff can happen. Not to scare you away from it, ACH payments are still probably the most reliable, most secure, and most efficient way to collect your rent is with an ACH payment. And if you've had your tenant uh, fill out, maybe you have an addendum to your lease or some clause in your lease that talks about your authority to debit their account, um, that's a good thing to have on file, you know, some kind of clause like that or something in your lease that stipulates how you're going to collect that rent. Um, in our case, our, our property where software um, engages the tenant in a third-party agreement to collect the funds on our behalf. So our software collects the funds from the tenant through a third-party processor, and then the money is then transferred to us. So we have agreements with our software company, they have agreements with their processor. Their processor has agreements with a bank, and the bank has a client who is the tenant. So there's a lot of layers in there, but it's still the most efficient way to collect your money. That's right. Your money collection, hopefully, is going to just click on. Every month, that money is flowing in. Every month, if your software integrates with this, it is uh, notated with your collection. You're going to have wonderful records and everything is going to look golden 
until it doesn't, right? Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. And one word about credit cards, because people may think, well, you know, hey, let's let's take credit cards. I mean, the tenant's going to pay the fee anyway, right? We're going to charge them a convenience fee or a flat fee or whatever to pay with a credit card. And the tenants want to do it sometimes because, like, our software charges a flat 50 bucks. They may get more than $50 in cash back rewards from their credit card paying three or $4,000 a month in rent every month, right? So they want to do that. We've decided against it because we've had enough issues with chargebacks from credit cards that we've determined ACH is a much more secure, much more reliable way to go. You may decide different. Um, there's no problem with taking credit cards for rent, perfectly allowed, no, no legal issue there at all. Just beware that it's a lot easier for them to dispute a charge on a credit card than it is for them to do through an ACH process. So. Good one. Yeah, great reminder. So rent is disputed. Rent is delinquent. Rent is late, right? That does still happen a good deal. It's not an incredibly frequent thing for us that we have a true delinquency. That is a a renter who is late and then doesn't pay their rent fairly quickly to get caught up and pay their late fees. You know, we have a late fee policy in our company. It's fairly aggressive because we want to deter the action of of paying rent late. And most property management companies have that too. But, of course, some tenants just have that reality. They, they don't have cash flow at the beginning of the month like they're hoping to. And so they've got to pay rent, and they willingly pay those late fees, and they true up their account, right? So we're not even going to really spend much time talking about that because it's very frequent that the third of the month rolls around. I should say the fifth of the month rolls around, and the tenant's uh, rent is late, uh, but that within a couple of days, everything's cleared up. That's a very common practice. The practice that is, of course, concerning is when the late period expires and you've made contact with the renter and it's crickets, it's silence. They don't talk to you. There's no promise to pay soon and you're in a real delinquent situation. So happens a small amount of time, but what's our standard process for that these days? Yeah, so the way our leases are written, right, rent's due on the first. Always best to have rent due on the first, right? We build in a grace period in our lease so that rent is not technically late until after the fifth day of the month. So on the sixth, rent is late. Okay, If we don't have the collection, the rent collected by then and we don't have any correspondence or a payment plan in place from the tenant, we serve a three-day notice here in Florida. That is the, the statutory process for that. It's a pretty well-defined form. Um, that you can find on, you know, from, from your eviction attorney that you use or on other legal websites, you can possibly find that form or I'm sure your property manager would have it if you're using one. And we have to post that notice on the door, hand deliver it, or mail it to the tenant. Um, right now, electronic copies are not accepted by the court. So email would be awesome, but it's not an official service, you know, as recognized by the court. So hand delivered posted on the door, or mailed to the tenant. And it basically states they've got three days. It's, it's called the pair quit, right? Three days to pair quit. And quit means get out, right? No one ever leaves after three days, by the way. Um, sure. But that's the initial beginning of the official eviction process if you decide to continue and go down that, that path with the court. So you've got to have that three-day notice. And the tenant has three days, right? So let's say you serve that lease, that notice on a Monday. So that three-day counter starts on the Tuesday. So Tuesday is day one, Wednesday is day two, Thursday is day three. 
right? They have until the end of the day on Wednesday, on Thursday, to pay or get out. And so on Friday morning, let's say that tenant has still not paid. Well, that's when your options become a little bit more negotiatory, a little more aggressive as a property manager. But it is your choice on how to handle that process, right? So reaching out to the renter at that point and determining, trying to make contact with them, determine what on earth is going on and what can be done to get them to pay what is owed is just a very good first, a first point of negotiation. You don't want to go nuclear right away and immediately bring in the process servers or the attorneys and commence that eviction process in most cases. In most cases, you really, really want to work very hard to make contact, even at that point once the notice has expired, because it's expensive to evict, and these days it takes some real time. I mean, we're talking about at least 45 days in most cases to get a person fully evicted from a house by following that eviction process. So it's not quick, nor is it free to do that. And if you can resolve it through good negotiation with that renter, you save money, maybe you save the tenant, and you give yourself a whole lot less headache. So attempt strongly to make contact with that renter through the entirety of that three-day notice process, and maybe even for a day or two after. Yeah, you know, and as a property manager, you know, a lot of times we've got to explain this to our owners and say, look, you know, here's your options. You know, we can we can go down the path where we spend five, six hundred dollars, get an attorney involved, and go through this court process, or we can work for you know another seven or eight days and try and get a good payment plan in place for this tenant, and see if they follow the payment plan. You know, and usually that that's a really good way to go is to try and you know maybe the rent's two grand a month. And you got four weeks in the month, and so they're like, hey, look, I can give you, you know, $1,000 now, and then in two weeks, I'll give you another $1,000. Or I'll give you $500 a week, you know, and we'll get this done. And as long as they stick to that plan, you know, usually that will pan out. But know that the longer that drags out, the next rent due date is coming up quickly. And so once a tenant gets too far behind... That's when you've got to consider, you know, will they ever be able to get caught up? And is now the time to cut the cord and move on to this legal process? But it's kind of a tap dance. It's not not one size fits all necessarily. It can be. Uh, There are a lot of managers, uh, some apartments out there are very rigid about this. I mean, they have no grace whatsoever. They're going to file an eviction on you on that fourth day after the notice expires, and that's the end of the story. Um, But... We found over our you know decade and a half working this business that there are some tenants you can save, and people do have financial issues sometimes. It's not expected, and if you can work with them in the long run, it's better for you and the owner. Yeah, I think it's very important to remember that as you near the end, I would say even the second, uh, the last third, of the month and the renter has not paid their rent for that month yet, the chances of them getting current on that month's rent and paying next month's rent just plummets. So if you can't get a serious inroad into what is owed within the first half of the month, then low chances of getting that tenant back into a performing uh, classification again. Otherwise, the reality is maybe you're going to get some money, but they're always going to be a little bit behind between late fees 
and what's owed for this month and next, you're always going to have a delinquent balance on your account. And as a landlord, you've got to decide if it's something you want to live with. We do that in some cases for some properties and renters where we might determine that re-renting that home is hard to do. And so we keep what's in there because we've got a challenging property to rent. But most often, that's not a good idea. It just creates a bunch of work for your future, and you may as well just bite the bullet, do the hard thing, and evict the renter. Don't let it get more than one month behind. Otherwise, you're going to have a very long-term problem on your hands. Yeah, and so, you know, one, one thing you can do to mitigate your risk in that, in, when you're trying to work with a tenant, is to do a stipulation with the court. And so there is a process by which you can start this eviction process with an attorney or a process server, but instead of moving all the way forward to, you know, final, you know, writ of possession, um, you can do a, a payment stipulation plan with the court. And what that allows you to do is to outline what your payment plan agreement is with the tenant in front of the court so that if that payment plan is violated, you can expeditiously move right to possession of the property. Um, and so sometimes that's a good way to go because the payment plan then is kind of codified with the court and it expedites your ability to get them out if they don't fulfill their end of the bargain. That's right. And it's a cheaper process sometimes than just going full boat into eviction, you know, right away. So Right. So eviction looks is a multi-step process, right? After you've served that three-day notice... You can then pass that violated three-day notice and the lease off to counsel or to a company that processes evictions for you, and they will handle the process of filing the summons with the courts, going through the, uh, the, the uh, really the lawsuit process, uh, getting the writ of possession, which is the court's authority for you to take back the property, and of course processing the sheriff who's going to come out at the end of that uh, at the end of that statutory time to ensure that the property is returned to you smoothly. There's lots of services that do that. And that process is going to cost, if you go through that entire process, you know, up to about $600, $650 these days. So it's not free. But there are things you can do to mitigate that. And one of them that, we, that we've done effectively is when you use a process server, that's a very official-looking person who's an agent of the courts usually, to actually serve that three-day notice they can engage that renter in a very, very serious conversation at the point of service. And it always looks more official to have a process server show up at your door, require a signature from you. That person's dressed in official-looking garb, and you take them seriously when that person shows up at your property to tell you you need to pay your rent. Sometimes paying for that process server to serve that three-day notice can actually help get that tenant into a repayment classification quicker. But our experience is... And once that three-day notice is started and you hand that documentation over to counsel, it's going through eviction. You can pretty much count on the fact that it's going to be another 30 or so days. You're going to have to go through that entire process and you're going to have to forcibly remove that tenant from the property. Forcibly as in legally remove them from the property. And you won't get it back until the point that the sheriff helps show up at that property to help you re-key it. So you need to expect that reality to take place. Um, and this is just an unfortunate reality of the system. Many people who enter an eviction process, this is not their first rodeo. They know exactly how long they have before the sheriff shows up at their property to kick them out. They're, they're 
conspicuously and diligently working now to save money for a new security deposit and a new first month's rent so they can make a brand new lease at the time that they're officially removed from the property. So you're not going to successfully get them out prior to the date that sheriff shows up. So just manage your expectations accordingly if you're a landlord in that situation. Yeah, never a fun thing, right? I think this is probably the thing that landlords fear the most, right? Like having to deal with evicting a tenant, right? It's probably up there, top two or three things that landlords fear or people that want to be landlords fear and it prevents them from becoming a landlord. You know, but historically, I mean, we've been at this quite a while now. And uh, I'd say throughout the course of our career of managing thousands and thousands of homes, I mean, We've, we've had to only evict, like officially evict through the courts, I mean, 20 or so people probably. I mean, out of thousands and thousands of units that we've managed. Yeah. I mean, it does not happen very often. Um, and there are several reasons for that. I mean, people not paying rent happens all the time. But most of the time, you're able to expeditiously get them out of the property or work things out with them without having to go through this full-blown you know, possession process, which is fortunate, fortunate for them and for us. Um, but we always are dealing with, on a recurring monthly basis, tenants that pay part of their rent, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's even more of a challenge sometimes because tenants may pay 70, 80% of their rent, but they're leaving that $150, $200 every month. They just can't seem to get all the way there, right? And so they're building up a balance, you know? And, uh, dealing with those is sometimes even more difficult than dealing with someone that just refuses to pay their rent at all. Um, and how you manage that. But at the end of the day, I think the important thing to take away from this pod is like cash flow is why we invest in properties. It's, it's not necessarily charity. <laughs> it shouldn't be necessarily. Definitely not. Uh, definitely <laughs> not. And um, so even though you may have a soft spot in your heart for the plight of a tenant, mm-hmm. we've heard a lot of sob stories. And, you know, sometimes they're real, sometimes they aren't. And at the end of the day, the tenant needs to understand this is a business, this is not personal, and you've got a job to do as the manager or the owner, and the job is maximize cash flow. And if they're not doing their part by fulfilling the lease, something's got to happen. That's right. And sometimes the maximization of cash flow, like Chase mentioned, is the fact that you're collecting 95% of the rent, and you are choosing not to evict. Because if you go through that eviction process, maybe you've got a hard, maybe you've got a big turnover that you're going to have to do. Maybe you've got a home that's hard to rent on the back end, right? You've got a bunch of different reasons why evicting that person or getting them out of the property would not be optimal for cash flow. So you deal with that small delinquent balance. At some point, you make a decision. That small delinquent balance has compounded. It's a large amount of money now. So you're going to, you're going to either take it from their security deposit at the end of their lease, or you're going to make a decision in the future to say, Enough is enough, and now we move to evict. You can do that at any time as a landlord. But to have a hard and fast policy of, tenant, you are $5 delinquent on your rent this month, you're going to eviction, is not necessarily what's optimal for your investment portfolio. It might de-stress you as an individual to know that you're not going to make any exceptions, but I'm not sure that's always the best business practice. Yeah, yeah property management is an art most of the time, not necessarily a science. That's exactly right. And it's something you learn over years of experience. It's nothing they're going to teach you in a book or a seminar. You know, it's this art that you acquire, you know, this, this uh, taste for property management over time. Yeah. Um, it, here's what's not helpful. You're a landlord. Don't get personally agitated about this reality. You know, 
the questions we get from landlords all the time, how could you let this tenant fall $5 behind or this amount of money behind it? Make them pay and, you know, get make them get out before your notice is done. Well, we can't make someone pay. You can't make someone get out just because a 33-day notice has expired, right? You've got to go through a process and a system to get that to happen. So do yourself a favor, do your manager, do your wife a favor, right? Don't get so emotionally tied up in, in knots about this process that you start just getting really intense, right? Realize that we're dealing with people here. You can't make people do a whole lot. You can just follow the processes and systems that are in place. What's that famous saying from the movie, right? You know, you mess with my money, you mess with my emotions. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I forget what movie that came from, but it was a good one, right? Yeah, which it was probably a great movie. I've never heard maybe, of it. Maybe it was Friday. Yeah. Right? I, I think it may have been yeah. Friday. I'm not advocating for that movie, by the way, but yeah. it was hilarious. Um, it's exactly yeah, right. Though. But you it are, is, right? yeah. Yeah. Money and emotions, they go hand in hand, right? Yeah. So, hey, all you landlords out there, there's this thing called liquidity, and you need to maintain it because you can't be running a rental property paycheck to paycheck. It just ain't going to happen. And your paycheck being the rent, sometimes the rent ain't going to get paid, and you still got to pay the mortgage. So stay liquid. Have right. reserves, you know, because you can never predict what a tenant will do. You can underwrite a tenant till the cows come home. And tragedies happen in people's lives. That's just the bottom line. Life is unpredictable, and your rent can also get unpredictable. So just remember that. Yeah. Well, wrap it up, I guess, with this, with this rent life cycle. We're talking about last month's rent and security deposit disposition, okay? So you've hopefully collected last month's rent. So the tenant reaches their last month. They notify you that they're moving out. They may not actually submit funds to you now because you're already holding their last month's rent in your escrow account, right? You'll then apply that to the tenant's charges and you can recognize that as income. You, you are not allowed to spend advance rent as a landlord. That's considered trust money that you're holding in trust for somebody. So if, your property, if you're using a property manager, they're not going to send you that money. They're going to hold it in their trust accounts and they're going to apply it to last month's rent charges. So just keep that in mind, all right? And then you'll receive that funds at last month's rent. And that will be what the tenant has prepaid, essentially. At the end of the month, they'll move out of the property. And then you'll have the chance to go in and check and see how they've done for you. Have they damaged stuff? Are their carpets stained? Are there holes in drywall? You have a short period of time to assess that property. Now, statutorily, you have 30 days to go into the property and determine the full extent of what repairs might be necessary and to issue notice to the renter that you're going to hold their security deposit or charge them a portion of their security deposit for the damages that they have done. Right? If, on the other hand, you walk into their property and it's in perfect condition, it's in the same condition as it was when you rented to them, you must return their security deposit within 15 days of move out. So you've got to get that right back to them. You have a little more time if there's damages. Right? Uh, what damages are included? It can't be ordinary wear and tear. A tenant lives in a home for four years and there's some smudge stains on the wall or that carpet is stained. You can't hold security deposit back for that. You might want to, but I guarantee you, no matter how clean you are, you're getting your carpet dirty over four years. You're smudging your wall up over four years. In fact, there are agreed upon standards for how long a paint job should last. And if your tenants lived in a property, for example, for more than three years, you can't assess them damages their security deposit if you have to repaint. Three years is considered an appropriate term of life for a paint job. Yeah, and these things get litigious, you know, so... 
a lot of times, you know, when in doubt, we err on the side of refund because we know from experience that these tenants will file a complaint. Um, there's attorneys lined up down the street waiting to take on landlords and property management companies. And so um, if you're talking about charging your tenant $100 for some smudges on the wall versus just giving it back to them knowing you got to pay it anyway, just refund the money. It's yeah. a lot easier on everyone. And I'm not talking about egregious stuff, but when, when, there's, when there's something that is marginal in question that could be interpreted as wear and tear, um, just realize that nine times out of ten you're going to lose that fight and you just need to go ahead and not charge the tenant for that stuff. It's wear and tear. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And your lease governs wear and tear. It says that yeah. you're not going to assess them for that. So don't try to challenge that interpretation. It really is going to fall on the side of a renter, generally speaking. Yeah. Yep, that's right. And uh, if you underwrite tenants well, and they've got you know good rental histories and good references, you know nine times out of ten you're not going to have a lot of damage to the property, and that's the goal. The goal is that you know you do a deep clean, um, maybe touch up some spots on the wall, caulk a couple you know nail holes here and there, and you're ready for your next tenant. That's it. I will say this: if your tenant's been delinquent, they've been late, they have late fees when they move out. We assess all of those against the security deposit. Sometimes you don't collect your late fee until they move out of the property. Or a couple hundred dollars of late rents or whatever it might be. Maybe they've got a fine from an HOA because they didn't do something. and They've never paid that on their rent. That will come out of their security deposit. So that you can take and should take because that's when, that's when you get that money that was rightfully yours all that time. So yeah. That's the life cycle, right? That's, that's all about collecting rents. That's how the cash comes in and how the cash goes out. That's for sure. So I like it. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, look forward to next week addressing another episode of Property Management Fundamentals. Hey there, it's Peter Murphy with Buying Tampa Bay. Are you an investor who has ever wanted to own real estate in Tampa Bay? Or do you currently have real estate and want to grow your portfolio at a few new investment properties, or maybe you just need some awesome property management to de-stress your life. Well, here's what I found. HomeProp is hands down the best real estate investment brokerage in Tampa Bay, and they can help you build wealth in real estate, which is right in line with our podcast mission to build wealth in real estate, and not just wealth as in dollars and cents, but in the quality of your life, the quality of your community, and just enriching, uh, enriching what exists around you. So you want to learn more? Click on the link to HomeProp in the podcast description and give them a shot.